I just know number go up. Like it will over time gain in purchasing power because it's the best money we've ever had. It's the best store of value we've ever, ever had. And it's like a giant, it's a giant vacuum that over time will suck the value out of these lesser store of value assets. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Corey from Swan. Corey, welcome. That's supposed to be a swan of some sort. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. I love uh, it. Good to be here, Joe. I've never uh, I've never done a pod with you before, I don't think. So uh glad to get to hang out for almost an hour. Yeah. 50 minutes, 30 minutes. I don't cut me off when I start to get redundant and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good, sounds good. Yeah. We'll just play it by ear and have a you know a good convo. Um, I wanted to start out, uh, in August of this year, you were basically featured in a New York times article about Bitcoin maximalism being this segment of the community that just kind of is relentlessly buying Bitcoin, even after the price crash. I'm curious to know, like, why do you think traditional media outlets get stuck on blockchain and, and crypto broadly and kind of fail to recognize the importance of Bitcoin? Like this was kind of a, a turn in events from traditional media. Yeah, it's true. So we set out at the beginning of the year to just every single media appearance for everyone at Swan and associated with Swan to just hammer home the Bitcoin, not crypto message. And just to be very, very clear that there's one of these things out here that is the original that's doing exactly what it was supposed to do for the last 13 years. And it's the only one that's going to be around in the long term. We, you know, did research on it. I wrote, I did the research with uh, Sam who leads, uh, He's our lead analyst for Swan Private, and we wrote an article about, you know, just pointing out that none of these cryptos gain against Bitcoin over time. They all bleed out, literally every single one of them. Um, never reach new all-time highs in Bitcoin terms, you know, three or more years later. And, you know, just pointing that out and, and stopping every interview, even if I was on like CNBC or Yahoo Finance or, you know, Coindesk or whatever live, if they referred to... Bitcoin, you know, as crypto, I would like stop the conversation in its tracks and go back and tease it apart. And, you know, if I had to use 45 seconds of my three minutes on that, so be it. But we just kept on hammering it all year long. And I think it started to finally get through people's heads that Bitcoin is different. Um, I mean, obviously, lots of people have figured this out and it wasn't just us. It's a million people kind of making that point on Twitter every day and, you know, saying the same thing. It's just kind of you know, it was very strategic on our part to make that our message, at least this year. And yeah, I think with the, uh, the Barron's feature at the beginning of July and then the New York Times feature at the beginning of August, um, you know, and, and frankly, both on the backs of the Luna blow up and the Celsius blow up, uh, both of which I was very vocal about uh, and telling people that was going to happen uh, in Luna's case two months before it happened and Celsius case a month before it happened. Um, you know, I think, uh, that was a big reason that there was a lot of, uh, media interest in us. Yeah. makes a lot of sense. Why do you think it is taking so long? I mean, Bitcoin's been around since 2009 and, you know, media still gets stuck on mm -hmm. Luna, crypto, all of this other, yeah. other stuff. And now like you, as you made a great point, like the Luna blow up, the Celsius blow up has pushed a lot of the media outlets to actually consider the idea of Bitcoin maximalism. But why do you think it's taken this long? Yeah, 
Um, so I, this, it, it's always a new wave, right? The first one was ICOs and is this something novel and interesting and special that disrupts everything? And that was kind of, the, that was a little bit more of a, uh, distributed push because there were lots of people doing ICOs all over the place and there wasn't necessarily like one villain or like a handful of villains that you could point to that were scamming everybody. And also just kind of a little bit less understood. There wasn't nearly as much Bitcoin signal in the market, you know, like Stefan Levera's podcast wasn't out. Marty's was just starting. There was no Brady Swenson. Safe's book wasn't out. Jan's book wasn't out. Like all this stuff is 2018, 2019 vintage that we have this wealth of information about Bitcoin. All we had was, you know, Nathaniel Popper's book, Digital Gold from 2014. Or if you were lucky enough to have somebody point you to like Nakamoto Institute or, or Lops page and, you know, up through about 2018, that's all you kind of had. Um, or maybe like I did, was lucky enough to uh, meet Jimmy and find his YouTube channel, you know, and then get into Andreas. And, and it was just way harder to find the stuff. But, you know, now that it's very clear that there's, you know, a Bitcoin only industry and that you can make money and be profitable in Bitcoin media and Bitcoin conferences and Bitcoin companies, um, there's way more budget and incentive for creating that signal in the noise. And so all of these sort of obvious scams don't really stand as much of a chance of gain, gaining a lot of traction like the ICOs did. So now we're dealing with a new beast. And this is actually the fact that there's probably never been an industry vertical better suited to uh, the venture capital business than crypto scamming. Um, at this moment in time, they're able to get away with uh, saying whatever they want about these things like this crypto bullshit, whatever is going to save the world. This blockchain thing is going to just disrupt everything. They can say literally whatever they want uh, while also taking advantage of being able to sell the thing to retail. So and being able to dump it. Right. So you can pump it however you want because it's not a security and you can dump it however you want because it's not a security. And these things, you know, are not doing and won't do what they claim to, you know, helium being a good example, Axie being a good example, like, and, and basically the distortion is because they're able to still make money, even without product market fit, even without revenue, even out without any of these things succeeding in the least. The venture, for, the venture firms still, these funds still have positive returns because they're pumping and dumping. That's where all the noise and all the confusion comes from. So it's really Andreessen Horowitz and Paradigm and these venture funds that have deployed $40 billion over the last two years into crypto scams. Uh, and then obviously they have big staffs with media, with PR, with relationships in San Francisco and in New York, talking to journalists constantly. So there's just way, way, way more money behind the, the crypto scam machine. And Andreessen has their own future, which is their media arm, which pumps these things out. And you've got Laura Shen and all the you know bandwidth that she gives to all these scammers and Pomp putting scammers on his show until recently and stuff like that. So, you know, I think it's just uh, it's really just follow the money. You know, the, there's a moment in time here where there's information arbitrage and regulatory arbitrage and a money making opportunity. And that $40 billion is going into confusing mainstream media about crypto. Yeah, I think you made a good point about 
a lot of venture capital money has flowed into crypto broadly. I think it kind of shows the general misallocation of capital that we've seen in a perpetual until, you know, last beginning of this year or late last year, a negative interest rate environment where money is free. People are throwing money at pretty much anything that, that walks or can get users. And now it's like we have this, you know, crypto thing where people can pump in a billion dollars, sell it to someone else for $10 billion and then move on. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's what's been happening the last couple of years, two, three years. Definitely. Also, I think but you made it. This too shall pass. Yeah. Bitcoin will still be here and it'll be bigger and more people will understand it. And we will continue our march into the bright orange future, which is, you know, 8 billion people having sound money and being able to transact with each other using the price signal that is unadulterated by, by third parties and manipulation. Yeah, exactly. I also think you made an interesting point about how the education back in before 2017 was basically just non-existent. I remember getting into crypto in like 2017 and discovering the Nakamoto Institute from Pierre and I was reading it and I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense, but it's just some random ugly website on the internet. <laughs> how, how could this be right? And I tried to like, you know, learn like how could Bitcoin, you know, not work. And I like couldn't find a, a decent answer. And I was like, maybe I'll, you know, buy some of this. No, oh, good on you. I, uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't fortunate enough. I, I wasted 11 months in the hinterlands of crypto exploration and friction tokens and ICOs before I, yeah, the signal for me was, uh, meeting, meeting Jemmy and then getting turned on to, to his, his YouTube show. And then from there, Andreas, and then finally, uh, you know, just finding some of the, the lops page, um, interestingly that I'm trying to, trying to remember what the, uh, the, the guy that does, uh, Libitcoin, is that Voskal? I forget. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he has just like incredible compendium. That's like a Wikipedia of every single threat to Bitcoin and, and why it's not a threat. And I oh, remember yeah. just going through every single one of those and I was like, damn, it's pretty well thought through, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when someone comes to you talking about, you know, Bitcoin, and they're like, hey, should I buy Bitcoin or ETH? And obviously you say Bitcoin. Why do you say not buy ETH? Like what's your what's your general answer to someone that doesn't know much about it? Um, I mean, basically it's just you're, you're playing a greater fool game because it can't do what it purports to do and it can't do what it aims to do. It's broken and, and also just like completely restarted right now. And and you'll lose in Bitcoin terms over over the long term. Um, holding ETH instead of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is money and ETH is not. So it just doesn't really make any sense. Um, if you're a trader and you're a really good trader, maybe you can trade swings or something like that or, you know, run some run some bots and some black boxes and participate in the casino. That's fine if that's your thing. But, uh, you know, it's not a good investment. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how post-merge over at this point now, 51% or more, of the blocks have been OFAC compliant blocks. Any, any thoughts on that? I mean, it's just a symptom of overall centralization. It's a, it's a, it is at a starting point that was obviously significantly more centralized than Bitcoin, but also now on proof of stake, it's inherently centralizing over time. There's no way to stop the political, it will just get more and more political over time if you're on proof of stake. 
Like that's yeah. just inherently how that system is designed. So, I mean, it's, it was doomed as a proof of work protocol because we humans only need one proof of work protocol. And it was doomed as soon as it moved on to proof of stake because proof of stake is just more fiat. It's more politics. So there's really like no room to operate for this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I think Bitcoin was basically the invention of immutable, verifiable scarcity and ETH and all of the other cryptos are clearly not immutable. And if they claim to be immutable, they're not as immutable as Bitcoin. And I think, you know, money or economic systems converge on one monetary good. And I think that's, you know, clearly Bitcoin is, in my opinion, the best monetary good we've ever seen. Um, Yep. Yeah, it's clearly it clearly has the best properties to be money of anything that we can that we have and frankly, anything that we can conceive of, which is really interesting. Like it's very difficult to conceive of something that could be better on the things. It is kind of perfect money for humans on this planet. And so that gives me plenty of confidence helping people get into Bitcoin enthusiastically, <laughs> suggesting that they do so and putting, uh, you know, putting my own money where my mouth is. Being, yeah. Uh, do, heavy on the you, coin. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on like how Bitcoin could be better? I'm curious to know that. Um, not really on, on base layer. I think we just have to be patient. I think a lot of people make the mistake of looking at like technology adoption curves and comparing it to like social media or iPads or something like that. And this is much, much bigger. Um, Carlotta Perez wrote a book in 2002, I think called, uh, financial revolutions. I'm sorry, technological revolutions in financial capital and kind of the interplay between the two. And the big, big revolutions change every industry. Bitcoin is going to change every industry. As you, as you sort of try to think of what's going to happen with layers above Bitcoin, lightning, medium of exchange, having machines talk to each other, streaming money. This stuff is all from like 2015 Andreas videos. Like this this stuff has all been thought through. We don't need to be, you know, but there will be a lot invented that we can't even really think of today. Just like it would be hard to imagine the things that we do on layer eight of the internet above layer one internet protocol today, right? It's hard. It's hard to imagine these things until you see them. So um, we'll just keep on building. This thing's going to take, you know, 40 to 80 years, like every other major cycle, uh, you know, whether it's the industrial revolution or the information revolution or steam power, you know, whatever the ones that came before, they take a long time to play out. This is going to take a long time to play out. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your company Swan a little bit. I know you guys, or you've tweeted before that you have intentions on going public on NASDAQ. Um, I guess, you know, and, and it is unique that you guys are a Bitcoin only company that wants to go public. Why do you want to go public? And after you go public, will you like, do you have confidence that you'll be able to maintain that Bitcoin focused ethos? Oh yeah. So first off, I mean, being Bitcoin only is very greedy. It's like the most capitalist thing you can possibly do. Um, there's a strong economic rationale for being Bitcoin only. You have a much better team obviously, because you have people that actually give a shit instead of a bunch of mercenaries. And so you get their 24 seven thinking time, right? They're out walking their dog or they're taking care of their kid for better or worse. Like they're usually thinking about Bitcoin and how they can get something done using Swan as a vehicle to further the cause that they're on. So, you know, this is 80 people across five continents and, you know, we basically hire from Twitter for the most part. So it's all, it's all missionaries who have proof of work and we know are completely down for the cause. 
And the few people that have like snuck in by pretending like they just don't last. It becomes very obvious very quickly and they just don't do their job well and nobody can really work with them because they don't care. And I think there's only been like two or three of those in the last three years. And it just doesn't make sense to, to hire anyone except for Bitcoiners for this company. Um, you know, your attack surface is dramatically smaller. Your technical complexity when you're only dealing with Bitcoin is, is way less. Um, your fraud risk when you are not dealing with all these, you know, smart contracts and hacks and all this other crap that everybody else has to deal with. Like, you just don't have to worry about that stuff. You don't have to like, you don't have to, I, I was laughing when we set up, we set up, uh, Swan private client services in early 2021. And the reason we did it, this is actually giving, you know, some of the top smartest Bitcoiners in the world as your sales contact for high net worth people and companies around the world. And we were like, wait, why hasn't somebody done this before? And then we realized, oh, the crypto casinos, they can't do it because one, obviously their compliance department won't let them because you'd have to be a registered rep because this all gray area, probably securities that you're repping. But two, no one can be eloquent on a hundred cryptos no one can go deep on a hundred of these things that switch out all the time. Right. So you're not going to be able to like be smart about talking about it. And three, and probably most importantly, the salesperson has to lie. Like if you want to sell Cardano, you have to lie. If you want to sell link, you have to lie. You have to literally lie and pretend that the Oracle problem has been solved in computer science. It literally has not. Like you have to lie and, and you have to learn all this crap. Like you have to go deep and learn about the spurge, the purge, the merge, the dirge, the whatever, you know, what are all the rhyming juvenile, you know, badger dance type engineers have come up with. Like, it's just a disgusting job to have to sell crypto and nobody wants to do that job. Yeah. With so that said though, it just, so it creates all this opportunity. You go through, you go through the aperture that appears to be a narrowing and out the other side comes immense creativity. And you realize if you want to sell Bitcoin better than anybody else, you have to sell it to uh, individuals. You have to sell it to businesses. You have to sell it to trust. You have to sell it in 401ks and IRAs. You have to sell it with recurring purchases. You have to sell it with large one-time purchases. You have to think about funding via debit, credit, ACH, wire, you know, all these different ways, when you multiply those factors out, like you're, you're selling Bitcoin literally thousands of different ways. When you combine all, all the different ways that you're selling it, how you're packaging it, who you're selling it to and what the funding method is, and then think about the full life cycle. Well, how are they custodying it? Are they doing self-custody? Are they doing multi-sig? Are they leaving it with you? Like all these different ways. So there's so many different paths into Bitcoin and helping people along the customer journey and optimizing that and helping them do it the best way possible. That's good for Bitcoin and good for them. Um, that's a very complex business. Yeah. When you, in regards to selling crypto, ironically, there are still people that, you know, prom promote things like Cardano and XRP that are just clearly, you know, not long-term investments or they're basically bag holders that are looking to sell it for more dollars or more Bitcoin in the long run. Do you think the people that are promoting it, are they actually lying, like you said, or are they just, they don't understand necessarily what they're promoting? It doesn't really matter classical ethics, right? So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether, because I can never know 
I can never know whether you believe it or not. I mean, some people you can obviously call a scammer because it's just obvious from listening to them talk like Do Kwan or Mashinsky, like those guys are, you know, red flags every time they open their mouths. Um, but the rest of them, so you think of like the, the Kyle Samanis or the Ari Pauls, like Ari seems to me like he might believe some of this stuff. You know, that's uh, the block tower guy. Kyle Samani clearly doesn't believe some of the shit that he says. And he just says it because he's playing a role and he's just collecting AUM and, you know, whatever, making his money. Um, so I think he actively, deliberately lies regularly. But I wouldn't necessarily say like every single crypto fund manager is deliberately lying. I think some of them actually think something is going on um, and they're just mistaken. But again, the classical ethics thing is like, it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is like what you do. This is like, you, you have no way to prove that the bridge was constructed well. So if you're the engineer of the bridge, you and your family get to live under the bridge for two years after you finish constructing the bridge. That's how they handled that. And then you're like trying really hard to make sure that bridge doesn't collapse. Right. Um, you know, another, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, in the movie casino Scorsese movie. So, uh, you know, the, the casino boss is De Niro and, uh, and he's he's been stuck with this one employee as uh, as the manager of the slots area in his casino because he's like the the son of a legislator or something. And uh, the same machine delivers three jackpots in the same afternoon. And De Niro finds out about this and like rushes down to the floor, and you know is just haranguing the guy and saying like obviously you should have pulled the machine at the second jackpot. Like how could you possibly leave this? Obviously you're being scammed. And, you know, basically the punchline is he says, you know, either you're too stupid to know or you're in on it. Either way, you're fucking fired. And that's how I feel about people like Vitalik. It's like, I don't really care what you believe your intentions are. You're either fucking in on it or you're too fucking stupid. And he proves his stupidity often when he talks about Bitcoin and talks about you know, scalability and talks about security and all these different things. Like he has things dramatically wrong, even though he took a lot of time to learn Mandarin and talks like a computer, like he's still fucking wrong. And I don't give a shit whether he has good intentions or not. Yeah. Let's switch the uh, convo back to Bitcoin, I guess, on a more positive note. Um, so your company has this mission to create 10 million Bitcoiners. And I think there's basically a story behind this that I didn't know until I saw that you, you or someone else posted it on Twitter the other day. Why do you have a mission to, to bring or to make 10 million Bitcoiners? Yeah, so this was actually the mission statement of the company. I wrote it back in February of 2020, a month before we launched. And um, 10 million Bitcoiners is the number that you need in the United States to get to an intransigent minority, which in populations generally uh, is like three to 4% of the population. So like in, in the UK, when, when they got to like three or 4% of the population demanding halal meat, then that flips everything to being halal. And basically it's because the 97% don't really care. It's not that big a deal to them, but it's a huge deal to that intransigent minority that absolutely must have the, the meat prepared a certain way. Similarly, in, in, in Bitcoin here in the United States, which is the only, the only entity, the only organizing countervailing force contra Bitcoin that can matter in the next century is the United States government. There's literally no other entity on earth that can coordinate anything that would really make life difficult for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. 
And Bitcoin's still going to win in the long run, regardless. Like this will be global money, no matter how long it takes. It just that's just kind of game theoretically how it's going to end up. But life could be awesome for Bitcoiners in 2040, or it could really fucking suck, and it might not be a fun life for Bitcoiners until like 2100. And so this is this concept that I talk about a lot of the race versus the war, where if you win the adoption race, you don't ever have to fight the war. So all these people that are, you know, working on like Will Cole working on his, his mother-in-law and, you know, all these people with the, the new Bitcoin only um, political organizations, recognizing that the coin centers and the blockchain associations of the world don't have their best interests at heart. And we had to create our own organizations. So they're trying to change government from the inside. But the easiest thing to do, in my view, and the goal that's right there in front of us is getting 10 million people in the United States to own a decent chunk of Bitcoin in their net worth and actually understand it to the point where they actually think it's the right thing. It's the best thing for America and the world, right? Because um, they will show up at town halls and they will do canvassing campaigns and they'll make life difficult. They'll be that single issue voter. They'll make life difficult for the politicians that want to attack Bitcoin. And so that's, that's that intransigent minority that we need. And, you know, I don't know where we are. I think we're probably somewhere between like 100,000 and 200,000 right now that I would consider like solid Bitcoiners in the U.S. that have a good chunk of their net worth in Bitcoin and understand it deeply. So my guess is we need somewhere between like a 50 and 100x um, to ensure that we won't go to war <laughs> with the United States government. Um, Michael Saylor has a, a new speech uh, that he gave uh, at the Atlas Gala here in LA uh, a couple weeks ago. And he basically came down to, he seems to have reached the same conclusion. I've been, I've been tweeting about the race versus the war for a long time, but he basically says like, you don't wanna be a martyr. You wanna be a winner. And that's what, this, that's what this is about. Like avoid the war, don't be a martyr. I want my kids to enjoy a Bitcoinized future. I want to see hyper-Bitcoinization. I want to see Bitcoin as a widely used store of value, medium of account, medium of exchange, and unit of account. And I think all of that is doable by 2035 if we, you know, buckle up and stop wasting time on crypto scams. And so, you know, I'm writing a piece on this right now. I actually started it last night, finally. Been meaning to for a while. And, um, you know, it's it's basically every little bit in favor of Bitcoin helps and everything contra Bitcoin hurts and delays delays adoption, uh, slows us down in this race and makes the possibility of us having to fight a war and getting really nasty, like more likely. Um, so this is, this is kind of unpacking what I may just toss out and tweet and say something like, you know, Chris Dixon is an enemy of human freedom, right? But he actually is. He may not realize it, and his friends that he, you know, has cocktails with in Silicon Valley may not realize it. But you know, again, he's he's either in on it, which is clearly he's in on it, or too stupid. He may be both. Like he's obviously a smart guy, but he's in on it. He's got these financial incentives to to push all these crypto scams um, and claim that they're doing something, like Axie and Helium, you know, classic Andreessen pump and dumps, um, and you know, and he doesn't realize or doesn't care because of his just greedy uh doesn't care what he's doing to delay the onset of greater human freedom and prosperity which will come sort of 
with the surety that Bitcoin has won this race and that it won't, that Bitcoiners will never be fucked with on a grand scale by the U.S. government and anyone else joining that sort of like contra Bitcoin coalition. Yeah. For the 10 million Bitcoiners specifically, I'm curious to know, like, how exactly would you define a Bitcoiner, right? Do they have to have a like certain percentage of their net worth or their portfolio in Bitcoin? Do they have to run a full node and verify their UTXOs? Do they have to hold their own private keys? Like, what's the, you know, requirement? Yeah, for me, I'm trying to define a Bitcoiner that's going to be part of that intransigent minority that's going to try to, you know, make it. The race is won once you get there, basically, and you won't have a war. So that's specifically how I'm defining it. Um, so a Bitcoiner that's part of that 10 million intransigent minority in the U.S., that's going to be somebody that has, I think, just two things, like a good chunk of their net worth in Bitcoin that's meaningful to them and a deep understanding of Bitcoin and appreciation for it. That's it. Yeah. You know, like somebody's definition may, may you know, well, understanding means you have to run your own node and you have to like do all these other things. But, you know, in my view, I just want them to be... Um, you know, a combatant on the side, a ready and willing combatant. Hopefully we never have to fight, but they would be ready to fight. Um, by the way, sorry, I, I, I didn't finish your, your question about uh, going public, but I think this oh, is yeah. a nice add on here. Um, I personally have no ambitions whatsoever to be a public company CEO. I hear it absolutely sucks. Like you basically just spend all your time in like board meetings and shareholder actions and compliance. And like, it seriously sucks and people regret it. And I'm aware of that. And hopefully I can like take the thing public and then be executive chairman and find a CEO or something. Uh, <laughs> that'd be my goal. But, um, but I think it's really important just because of what that means to the market to, to prove that a Bitcoin only company can, can do that. And then I also think from a branding perspective, um, having people around the world being able to own a piece of the company to know that we're, you know, regulated, whatever, and um, audited, all those kinds of things, have analysts talking about you, uh, you know, just way easier for all your executives and, and board members to get on TV all the time talking about Bitcoin. And we're just going to be carrying this pure Bitcoin message. So I think it's... Uh, I think there's probably like an, if you're just talking about like in revenue terms, I think after going public, I think there's an easy, like, you know, five to 10 X revenue bump over the next couple of years, you know, attributable to being public. Yeah. I guess going public would be a great marketing opportunity in and of itself for Swan. That's, that's how I see it for Swan and for Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess going off that, do you have like a timeline that you want to go public by or, or is it just kind of like when the opportunity presents itself, you'll be ready? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of both. I mean, I think we'll be ready in two years and then it'll be timing. So there's always like a, an IPO window and then it closes. So sometime after two years when the window's open. No, that makes sense. I'm curious, how has Swan like performed during the bear market? I I imagine like many of your users that have, you know, been on the platform or they were introduced have been sticking on it and they're, they're DCAing, but I would also imagine that maybe like new user growth has slowed. I'm sure you don't want to like get dive into like super detailed statistics. No, of, it's of fine. Swamp. I mean, gen general broad strokes is fine. I mean, in general, uh, what's the two by two? Like, so if market pumps, we gain tons of users and tons of revenue. If the market uh, dumps, then you 
actually you you so user growth basically slows or stops when the market dumps but you also make a shit ton of revenue because in our case you know it's people that signed up for a service with no sell button so they generally see sats on sale and they go nuts um the only thing that kind of sucks is when it just goes sideways forever that's when that's when volumes are low and uh and user growth is like sideways or just kind of like in like incremental inching up kind of thing um I think we have maniacs as customers that just never stop buying for the most part. So there's always that kind of like, I think it's like 70 to 75% of our customers are on recurring purchase plans and they never turn off and almost never leave. And so we just, that number tends to just go up over time, the number of people that are on recurring purchase plans, but it definitely accelerates when, when there's a bull market. Yeah, no, it seems fairly logical. Um, how do you, I guess, approach Bitcoin currently, given the like really tough macro backdrop when someone comes to you and says, hey, I thought Bitcoin was this superior inflation hedge and it's down, you know, 77, 75% from its all time high. What do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I just honestly like Stephen Lubka, who runs Swan Private, um, did such a good job explaining, you know, the two different types of inflation and that, you know, the... Uh, the original definition was about monetary inflation, which makes sense. Like we talk about debasement that was literally like debasing the coins and, and shaving metal off the coin. And the coin gets smaller over time. As you look at the Roman coins, you know, over 500 years or something, that's debasement. And inflation is just printing more of these things, right? So there's more money in circulation. And, you know, Bitcoin, as I always understood it, and I was never one of those people that promoted it as an inflation hedge, frankly, me personally, like I wasn't out there like banging the drum and saying like, oh no, you guys are fucking wrong. I'm not an asshole. But uh, it wasn't something that I ever talked about. I always understood it as like a hedge against the entire fiat system and something that we're moving over to. And, uh, you know, essentially as, as a hedge against the literal inflation of the money supply and not against some CPI metric. It's way too volatile to think about it in short terms. Um, you know, and I always rejected any sort of uh, you know, analysis about its close correlation with the cues over some short time frame. It's like, dude, just zoom out. This is, this thing is 13 years old. It's been in kind of like four year cycles for the last eight years or something and two year cycles before that. And, you know, we have no idea how long this thing is going to take over time. I just know number go up. Like it will over time gain in purchasing power because it's the best money we've ever had. It's the best store of value we've ever ever had and it's like a giant it's a giant vacuum that over time will suck the value out of these lesser store of value assets yeah it's interesting because kind of like you said at the at the beginning there wasn't much education for bitcoin up until maybe like 2017 or, or 2018 but yet bitcoin the asset still accrued a very significant amount of value so do you think there's a, an argument to to say that, hey, maybe there's this decent portion of Bitcoin held by Bitcoiners in the world or not necessarily Bitcoiners, but people that hold Bitcoin that may not fully even understand what they hold, like if they hold a thousand Bitcoin or something like that? I find that to be pretty rare because once something becomes pretty valuable, you usually uh, it, it it's pro-cyclical. You learn more and then you hold more and that makes you want to learn more. So, you know, even friends of mine that, you know, were 
traders or hedge fund guys and just, you know, somebody told them to grab 5,000 coins in 2013 or something like that, you know, like they know a lot more about Bitcoin now than they used to, like way more because it's a significant part of their financial holdings at this point in most yeah, cases. I think that makes sense. So going back real quick to your goal of, of or Swan's mission of, of getting 10 million Bitcoin Bitcoiners, what would you say to people that may think, Hey, Bitcoiners are too toxic. What's your argument to say like, Hey, like, yes, Bitcoiners are toxic, but it's helping get the 10 million Bitcoiners. Like people might think toxicity would mean less than 10 million Bitcoiners. And you're, I would imagine you're, you would argue the opposite of that. I mean, I muted all four people that talk regularly about Bitcoiners being toxic. And then it's just like not a thing anymore. <laughs> Like I just, I just, it's such a, it's such a just obvious ploy to get attention for those people to, you know, use some epithet that Vitalik came up with and lob it over against Bitcoiners. It's just like, it's so dumb. It was always such a dumb conversation. So I just ignore it. Yeah, it's fair. It is I mean, funny I'm a how Bitcoiner it's... and like, I just, you know, it's just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember like in 2018, it was, I feel like the... I don't know. I guess it started out originally with Vitalik calling Bitcoiners Bitcoin maximalists as an insult. And then in like 2018 and 2017, Bitcoiners kind of like embraced it. And they were like, yes, we're Bitcoin maximalists. And it was well, kind of Samson funny. Samson made those dope hats. Yeah. Toxic Bitcoin maximalist hats with the, uh, with the hazmat logo. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Listen, like, like any epithet, like if a community that it's, that's being targeted wants to co-opt it and own it and just have fun with it, like it's totally within their right to do it. And, and I don't really give a shit if another Bitcoiner wants to call me a maximalist, but you know, but I'll stop the interview if I'm on a crypto podcast or a mainstream <laughs> interview and I'll explain that's, you know, maxi is a diminutive of an epithet and it means you don't know what's going on here. So let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just. The history of the uh, term is just kind of funny <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the Bitcoin world. Yep. I mean, the, what, you, what I generally find is these guys have debate backgrounds and they're good at creating straw men and pretending that there is a type of person that doesn't actually exist or a position that nobody actually takes and, and claiming that that's a position that's actually widely held. Um, and it's just like just complete mental masturbation on their parts. And maybe, maybe it gets... I mean, I can name them like maybe it gets Udi some blockchain consulting revenue or something like that, or, you know, helps Eric gain some AUM for his crypto fund. But like, these are not people, you know, I, I was disappointed to see Eric follow suit this year. Udi was always like that. Eric actually, Eric Wall uh, has contributed quite a lot, frankly, um, to Bitcoin thought. And I think this was just uh, an unfortunate sidetrack. But, you know, once he once he's done with it and wants to come back. I would say, you know, has generally been a, a genuine participant until this year. Uh, but Udi, I just don't have any time for it all. Yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, I guess, thought leader, quote unquote, in the Bitcoin industry that I liked was Trace Merritt. I think he made like a lot of great videos back when he was, you know, actually a, a full Bitcoiner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He, he did his exit scam for whatever reason. I don't know. It's a shame. Yeah. You know, I, I like I heard, the way he like, talked about things. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I heard Caitlin Long, Long was on a podcast. 
like maybe a week or so, week or so ago. And I, I, she mentioned that she had talked to Trace recently about Bitcoin and stuff. And I thought that was interesting because he definitely has gone dark. So I wonder what he's up to. Trace, if you're out there, come on the podcast. I'll talk to you. <laughs> come on the pod. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, listen, man, there, there are so many voices out there now that you don't need to listen to people whose views are adulterated by bullshit. Right. Like I don't need to point people toward Andreas anymore because there's plenty of people out there that aren't confused and who actually do understand money and economics to a degree much greater than he does, even though he's a fucking genius and I love his videos and it was instrumental to like my understanding of Bitcoin. And I remember certain videos of his, I used to listen to the YouTube videos more than watch them. And I like, I remember what street I was on and where I was walking or whether I was with one of my daughters and like, when that point was made by Andreas and I sent my parents to go see him live and like all this stuff. But it's like, at the end of the day, if you're also saying there's going to be 10,000 of these tokens and some girl in some village can like create a token that's going to get used as money in her region of a continent. It's like, dude, you don't understand this shit. Like there's, you have massive gaps in your understanding here. And, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, the same goes for quite a few people who were at one point, the best we had, but now we have better. Like we, Roger Ver used to be one of the best advocates for Bitcoin, but he didn't really understand it, you know, and Andreas doesn't fully understand it. And I'm not saying that I do, but I can point to some things that they get dramatically wrong about Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin does have this habit or the Bitcoin community does have this habit of killing their, their thought leaders and transitioning to new ones that, you know, some argue are better, some argue are worse, but it is interesting how that continues to happen. I think, again, that's yeah. kind of a feature of the community out. You know, there's not really a clear leader. I think that's kind of the hundred percent. And yeah, and some of the best people that really do know it through and through, they get tired. So they don't want to be in the Twitter fights. And so then you're sending your B team, you know, and, you know, everyone on the crypto side is on the B team by definition, but they're going up against the B team on the Bitcoin side because the, you know, the other guys are kind of retired. They're tired of it, you know? Yeah. So you're not getting Jimmy and Jameson on every single fucking thread. Yeah. <laughs> if you point. did, if you did, you just get stomped out like Michael Jordan <laughs> in eighth grade game. Like you just get crushed every single time. But, uh, you know, people like to argue with somebody today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to the idea that a lot of the, setbacks or like critiques of Bitcoin were answered on like the Bitcoin talk forum back in like 2011. So long ago, <laughs> so long ago. Yeah. You can just go back and, you know, you read like, you know, VJ from 2018 or beauty on from like 2011 or yeah. whenever his, you know, some of his first stuff, like there's so many good things, things that Hal and Satoshi said, just like answer the questions on first principles and explain how this shit is going to play out. And it has exactly done that in so many ways. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and those guys that I guess understood it or somewhat understood it back then have, you know, thousands of BTC. So they're not on Bitcoin Twitter arguing with each other. <laughs> arguing Listen, with the... we're going to, in 2026, we're going to be talking about people that have tens of BTCs as being filthy rich. And like, you know, another four to eight years after that, it's going to be like anyone with a Bitcoin, you know, it's just going to be, yeah, it's just going to be more and more scarce as compared to the number of humans that want some. Yeah, exponential scarcity is a wild invention and we're watching it play out in real time. So it's definitely exciting. 
I know you're hosting the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. Tell oh, people yeah. like what it is and why should our audience listening right now sign up and go to it? All right. So first off, PacificBitcoin.com. Go get your tickets. Uh, you can use the code Corey for uh, 20% off. Uh, so this is the largest Bitcoin conference on the West Coast. It's in Los Angeles. We're putting it on at the uh, at an airplane hangar at the Santa Monica Airport, the Barker Hangar, which is an amazing venue. It's a real airplane hangar, but they also do like MTV Movie Awards and Nickelodeon Kids Choice and stuff. So it's like really well well set up for uh, being able to do big events. Um, a ton of the top Bitcoiners are are speaking and will be around. So Sailor and Lynn and. Fossey and Lavera and Natalie Brunel and, you know, on and on and on. It's just a huge speaker list. You can check that out. Um, there's a bunch of side events. There's a, there's a beef steak. If you buy the VIP ticket, we've got uh, an, a huge VIP party on Thursday night and then a wrap party on Saturday uh, at this crazy beach house mansion. So that should be fun. Um yeah, I mean, it's just a celebration of Bitcoin. There'll be a lot of learning. There'll be a lot of fun, amazing opportunities to connect with other Bitcoiners. A lot of the top companies, obviously, uh, uh, coming, many of them sponsoring, which is awesome, or at least their founders speaking. Um, and we're going to do this every year in the fall in Los Angeles. Um, it is Bitcoin only. There are no crypto speakers and no crypto sponsors, so only pure Bitcoin signal. So, you know, this is uh, obviously a pretty large gathering of uh, of Bitcoiners. Uh, we're bringing back the Swan Dome, which a lot of people loved at the, the Bitcoin conference in Miami in, in 2021. Uh, so we're constructing a, a Swan Dome. That's the second stage. And that will be much more sort of like insider, a little bit more technical, um, kind of like more like industry and hardcore Bitcoiner chat on that stage. And then we have a third stage that is the uh, the Magic Money Court. And that's actually a basketball court. And yes, there will be a three-on-three -three tournament featuring 16 teams of Bitcoiners, the Bitcoin Classic. Uh, their first edition was at Rucker Park in New York. The second one is at the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. And uh, yeah, there'll be, you know, DJs and live performances. Um, you know, it should be pretty fun. So yeah, excited for that. It's uh, Thursday and Friday, November 10th and 11th. The 11th is a national holiday. So you only have to take one day off of work. And if you haven't been out here in a while, uh, this is a great opportunity to do it. Come see some friends in LA, come hang with some Bitcoiners. Was that good enough? Was that a good shell? Do you think we good? I think that was good. Are you going to be in the, are you going to be in the three on three, uh, basketball tournament or, or no? So yeah, I probably will just let everybody else play. I probably will. I, I will probably participate in the three point competition. Um, but I don't plan to be super sweaty and, uh, and to be hobbled with an injury during the conference. I've got some <laughs> other things to do that week. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it pains me. There's still a 10% chance that I'll join one of the Swan teams. We're putting two teams in. Nice. Um, yeah, I, if people don't know, they'll be surprised if you come out, there's like, I don't know, I think probably 20 basketball players at Swan that have like accomplishments <laughs> in basketball, including multiple Dang. D1 players, oh, wow. uh, pro basketball players. We've got the Compton Magic coming, the top AAU pro program in the country. Um, so they're coming on Friday morning, doing an exhibition. Uh, the Professor is coming, the the and one guy that uh, it's gotten famous on YouTube. So he's going to be doing doing some fun stuff at the at the Magic Money Court. So yeah, there's there's a little bit of basketball. 
Nice. Yeah, sounds interesting. I think if you live near LA or you've always wanted to visit LA, it kind of sounds like a no-brainer. Um, but yeah, I think we'll go ahead and just wrap this up. Corey, is cool. there? thanks for coming on the podcast first, but is there anywhere you want to send the viewers? I know Twitter, LA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, I'd love to just uh, just mention in, in case you have any uh, RAAs or FAs watching. I know the, the Blockworks audience is... Uh, Excuse a little bit more professional, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, we launched Swan Advisor Services a couple months ago, and it's going great. So this basically helps uh, RAs get Bitcoin into their client portfolios and still be able to you know, take your fees on it. So if you are a client of a financial advisor and you want to work Bitcoin into your portfolio and, and have someone help get it into the trusts and retirement accounts and, and all of that, uh, tell your advisor about it, swan.com slash advisor. Um, and then, yeah, otherwise, you know, I guess I don't know that I've done a podcast since we officially closed the acquisition of Spectre. So I just wanted to just welcome that amazing team to the Swan family. Uh, and, and it's just, it's awesome to see, you know, Moritz and, and Manolis and, and Ken like chilling in your Slack every day because I have so much respect for that team and what they've built. So I'm really glad to have them aboard and I think we're going to build some awesome stuff together. So welcome, welcome Spectre. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't mention that. That is a you know great point. I think it's any, any products or services that, you know, enable Bitcoiners to more easily hold their own private keys is, you know, fantastic for the industry. So that was, that was yep. a great decision in my opinion. Cool. Well, thanks for having me on Joe. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to do it again. All right. Anytime. Thank you.